Hello, friends. Welcome to Worldwide Crime. My name is Eric, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Erica. Sup? Today will be the continuation of the Edmund Kemper story. In this part of the story, there will be mentions of suicide. So if you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal ideation, please reach out for help. There's no shame in it. You can reach out to the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. There is never a wrong time to do so. It can save a life. That being said, there will be mega sadness, grossness, and shock in the following story, so maybe keep this one from the kiddies, yeah? Listener discretion is strongly advised. When we left off last time, Ed had tried to ditch Clarnell by moving back in with his father in California. He was then betrayed by his father and dumped off with his grandparents. He then killed his grandparents and got sent to a mental health facility surrounded by child molesters, rapists, and murderers. Yeah, he was 15 when he was sent there. That would screw any kid up. Absolutely. Now that Ed's been released from the hospital and is living with his mother in California, she must have moved back there when he was locked up. Oh, uh, hey, notice anything different about me? No, not really. You appear and sound like the same dummy as before. No, yes, but I bought a new audio interface and mic preamp. So now everyone gets to hear your lowbrow juvenile humor and rampant stupidity in crystal clear fashion. Yes, they do. Great. Just get on with the story now. They call this the proximity effect. Makes me sound all deep and sexy and in your face. God damn it. On May 7th, 1972, Marianne Pesh and Anita Lucessa were two students from Fresno University. The two students were spending the day in Berkeley, shopping and doing what normal college students did at the time. The two young women were picked up in Berkeley by a kind and friendly driver. They told this driver that they needed to get to Stanford University. Stanford University is found on the northwest corner of Santa Cruz County, near Palo Alto. Stanford was about an hour away, and the driver was happy to oblige. The next day, when the two young girls hadn't shown up to class, they were reported missing. The driver was Ed Kemper. While driving, Ed was making small talk, appearing harmless and kind to the young women. He was making jokes and sharing stories, all while a familiar bit of advice was repeating in his head. If you're gonna rape somebody, make sure you kill them after. After about 40 to 50 minutes of driving, the two young girls found themselves heading down a secluded, heavily wooded road near Alameda. Just when they started to ask where they were going, Ed pulled a gun out from under his leg. He was sitting on it, so it was out of sight and easily accessible. Both girls are now startled and terrified. How could this nice man be doing this? Ed handed Marianne a pair of handcuffs and told her to secure herself to the seat in front of her. Faced with a stranger aiming a loaded weapon at her and her location, she reluctantly did as she was asked. After Marianne was under Ed's control, he pulled over and told Anita to get out of the car, to which she did. Ed ushered her to the back of the car, popped the trunk, and told her to get inside. Just like Mary Ann, Anita reluctantly climbed inside. Then the trunk slammed shut. Now Ed has complete control over both young women. He then turned his attention to Mary Ann, handcuffed to her seat and unable to escape. Scared. Ed would climb on top of her in the back seat and began choking and stabbing her. 
Marianne struggled as best she could, but trapped into this mountain of a man is sadly where she would have her last experience in this world. She would succumb to her injuries and Anita hurt it all. Anita, trapped in the trunk, had to listen to her roommate and friend killed in an extremely violent way. And there was nothing she could do to stop it. Can you imagine having to listen to that from the trunk? No, I can't. Think she was in denial? Like she thought maybe what she was hearing wasn't really what she was hearing? Like a natural defense mechanism to protect you from the reality of it. Well, they're just wrestling. This will all be over soon and we'll be back home safe and sound, like studying for the next day's classes. Possibly. It's scary to think about. I imagine it's even scarier to live through. Ugh. Ed, with his hands and forearms caked in Marianne's blood, climbed out of the vehicle and walked to the back of it. He then opened the trunk to a terrified Anita, shaking, crying. Anita would ask where her friend is and why he was doing this. Ed would later admit in an interview that he was scared too. Anita started to climb out of the trunk. When Ed pulled from the trunk, the original Buffalo Skinner, which was a different kind of knife than the one used to kill Mary Ann. Ed told interviewers the knife was expensive, quote, eight, nine dollars or something, end quote, which is around $55 as of the date of this recording. He stabbed her with all the strength he could muster as she was climbing out of the trunk, but the knife, as expensive as it was, didn't penetrate the denim overalls worn by Anita. Anita saw what was happening. As Kemper stabbed at her over and over again, she threw herself back into the trunk, not knowing what else to do. She cried for Ed to stop. She pleaded for God's intervention, but to no avail. Realizing if she was to survive this ruthless attack, it would be her responsibility to do so. She began fighting back. Ed noticed in amazement that the knife would not go through her clothing, so he began to slash and stab at her throat. In this process of slashing and thrusting the blade towards Anita's neck, he stabbed his own hand. Ed recalled he was not aware of the injury until about an hour after the attack's conclusion. Adrenaline will have that effect. Ed continued trying to stab Anita, and she fought back viciously. Ed recalled at one point stabbing her forearm during the struggle. He said the wound was so large that you could plainly see both bones. This caused both parties to take pause just for a split second. The attack would finally come to its tragic end when Ed found himself successful in his pursuit to kill both young women. Ed then drugged Marianne's body from the back seat and loaded her into the trunk where Anita had been murdered just moments before. Ed then headed to a clinic for treatment. He had stabbed himself after all. Dr. Donald G. Miller in Aptos would tend to Ed's cut, giving him three stitches. All while Marianne and Anita lay dead in the clinic's parking lot confined to Ed's trunk. Seriously? I know. It's messed up. I can't even stop somewhere with groceries in the trunk without anxiety. He probably had to wait forever to see the doctor as well. Speaking of the doctor, he isn't really relevant to the story, but I found his name and threw it in. Then why put his name in? Kind of feel like I just told you. Maybe moving forward, you focus on relevant facts when writing the story. No way. College has taught me anything. You put as many words in your paper as you can. Makes you look like an overachiever. Or... It makes you sound like an idiot. Word counter bust. That's how I roll. 
After leaving the clinic, he drove back to his apartment. He carried the two slain women inside, where he raped both bodies before decapitating them and cutting off their hands and dumping their remains in the Loma Prieta Mountains. A few months later in August, hikers found a human skull. Through dental records, investigators found that the skull belonged to Marianne Pesh. It can be assumed the rest of her remains were dumped elsewhere, or predation was to blame. During the summer months in that area of California, it's exceptionally hot, which hastens decomposition rate. We will get into what happened with Anita's body later in the story. Hang on, back up for a second. He raped the bodies. I told you this one was going to be rough. What the hell? It gets worse. I would give anything for a virus right now. You'll have to deal with being a viral ass instead. I'm begging you. No dad jokes, please. Well, they're my jam. That's like asking me not to breathe. That actually isn't a horrible idea. Stop. No wishing death upon me. Ed now had four slain victims to his tally, including his own grandparents. Hazel Bright and Ikoku were best friends. Like sisters, as Hazel would later describe the relationship. On March 11th, 1972, a journal entry made by Hazel expressed a change in Ico. The exact details of that change are unclear. Ico and Hazel met when they were 12 years old. They enjoyed ballet and were both being raised by single mothers. As time went on, they seemed to drift apart. Hazel wanted very much to continue the friendship they had shared, but she respected Ico's space. One evening in mid-September, Hazel was waiting at a bus stop in Berkeley when she noticed Iko across the street. Hazel was excited to see her friend, but as Hazel was looking over at her, Iko stuck her thumb out. Iko aimed to hitchhike to San Francisco for ballet class. Hazel couldn't understand why Iko would prefer this mode of transportation over the bus with her best friend. They were only 15 years old. Hazel was waving and calling for her friend, but Iko couldn't hear her over all the traffic between them. Just then, the bus pulled up, and Hazel climbed inside, leaving Iko alone on a busy street, hitchhiking. On September 14, 1972, Hazel would see her best friend for the last time through a bus window. Soon after, a white 1969 Ford Galaxy pulled up with a plain-looking guy behind the wheel. He asked Iko where she was headed. She told him, and he kindly agreed to take her. Driving time from where Iko was picked up to San Francisco was only about 20 minutes, but they drove for approximately two hours and just talked. At one point during the conversation, the friendly driver confessed to Iko that he was going to commit suicide. This was likely shocking to a 15-year-old girl. Considering that they had been driving for as long as they have, Aiko must have been wondering why it was taking so long to get to her destination. She had taken the bus there before, and even with all the stops the bus makes along the way, it never took two hours. The kind driver would admit something else to Aiko that must have sent fear throughout her body. The driver was Ed Kemper, and he informed Aiko that she had been abducted. Ed would later say that Aiko was very cooperative. This could be due to shock, or maybe Aiko didn't understand the danger she was actually in. Ed would pick up a roll of duct tape, tear off a length of it, and place it over Aiko's mouth. The unfortunate truth about youths in the 1960s and 70s was a number of them would go missing. 
Their parents would file a report with law enforcement, but these kids were often classified as runaways. I can't imagine the frustration and fear that parents felt when authorities would do nothing except tell the parents to wait until their children return home. Aiko Ku, however, was a different story. When Aiko was reported missing by her mother, she told police that she knew where Aiko was going, when she was supposed to be there, and what bus she was taking. Aiko never showed up to her ballet class, and there was no history of Aiko ever running away in the past. Even with all this, Aiko's report would be filed away with countless other missing persons reports. As Aiko sat in the passenger seat of Ed's car, scared and confused, Ed would come to a stop in a remote, wooded area. He got out of the car and pulled a gun on her. Somehow during this event, the door managed to close, locking Ed out of the car. His gun and Aiko still inside. He managed to convince Aiko to let him back in the vehicle, where he choked her unconscious, raped her, then strangled her to death. He put Aiko's body in the trunk of his car, then he drove into town, stopped at a bar, and had a few beers. No, he didn't stop and drink beer with a dead 15-year-old in his trunk. He did. No, he didn't. Do you know something I don't? Oh, lots. But specifically as it pertains to this part of the story, he didn't do that because even the most deranged wouldn't be that careless. It's a big risk. He had to be concerned that someone would see. He has a 145 IQ after all. You think so? Yes, I do. Oh, okay. You're not going to argue? Nope. Why? You will see in about a minute. I hate you. XOXO. When Ed returned outside, he opened the trunk of the car, and he admired what he had done to Aiko, like a hunter would after killing a trophy buck. Ed then closed the trunk, climbed behind the wheel, and drove back to his apartment with Aiko lying dead inside. Oh, fuck off. Hey, don't get pissed at me. I'm just the messenger. Kemper's the one that did all this shit. He's not here. You are. So again, fuck off. Once Ed arrived at his apartment, he took Aiko inside. He began posing her lifeless body in sexual positions. He took photographs. After, he put Aiko in the bathtub and he dissected and dismembered her. Hazel would see Aiko's picture in the newspaper days later, along with the story of her last whereabouts. Hazel would spend decades wondering if she had missed the bus and just went over to her friend across the street. Would she still be alive? It's easy to form a love-hate relationship with Edmund Kemper. He is intelligent, well-spoken, and friendly to just about everyone he met. Some of the friends he made were police officers in a bar called the Jury Room. The Jury Room was a local watering hole in Santa Cruz that officers would visit to unwind after a shift. Ed would frink with this bar enough to become, as Ed put it, a friendly nuisance. Was this the bar Kemper had beers in while Iko lay dead in his trunk? I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. This guy. I don't have words. Yeah, I know. Even still... This story gets worse. He sets the bar even higher. I'm tempted to brick your computer. Don't do that. I have hours of research saved on this computer. I know. It's a deviant's wet dream in here. <laughs> I guess you're not wrong. Ed found the officers to be his friends, but friendship wasn't his only reason for visiting this bar. Word was out that there was a killer on the loose in the Santa Cruz area and Ed would get frequent updates on the police investigation concerning these crimes. 
Ed would later jokingly say he learned a lot from watching cop shows on TV, too. The police would warn every person they saw hitchhiking that the killer they were after was targeting hitchhikers. The young and rebellious hitchhikers would find these warnings to be an infringement on their rights to hitchhike. These kids would even organize to protest the harassing warnings issued by authorities. Ed claimed to have picked up at least 200 hitchhikers during his reign of terror, but he let most of them go. He would tell authorities later that he wouldn't commit himself to killing a hitchhiker unless he was absolutely certain he would not get caught. If the streets were busy, he feared that someone would remember seeing someone climbing into his car. It was a risk he wasn't willing to take. This proved effective. In January of 1973, citizens would begin discovering more than just news stories about the killer wreaking havoc on their community. Body parts would begin washing ashore. A torso washed up and was found by a couple beachgoers. A few days later, a surfer discovered a human hand floating in the water next to him. A highway patrolman found other various body parts on the other side of the bay from Santa Cruz. Using the best forensic science available at the time, authorities were able to find that these remains belonged to Cynthia Ann Shaw. Cynthia was a student at Cabrillo College. When she was not at school, she was a family's live-in nanny. She made money, and it cost little to nothing to live with this family. 18-year-old Cynthia was saving up to buy a car, but until then, she was relegated to hitchhiking to get around. One morning, Cynthia's mother received a phone call from the family employing the young college student and informed her that they have not seen her in three days. One day on Mission Street in Santa Cruz, Cynthia was hitchhiking in hopes to catch a ride to campus. She had evening classes to get to. Ed, while looking for another victim to satisfy his deviant urges, saw the girl and picked her up. She told him where she was going, and Ed agreed to take her. After they turned off the busy road, Ed pulled out his newly bought 22 caliber pistol and drove her into the secluded area he had visited twice before. Ed stopped the car and ordered Cynthia to get out and into the trunk at gunpoint. Cynthia did as Ed demanded, and this trunk is where Cynthia would be shot in the head, killing her instantly. Ed then closed the trunk lid and drove back to his apartment. He then unloaded Cynthia's body from the trunk and carried her inside. He then raped and defiled Cynthia's lifeless body. After, he dismembered her. Ed then took the body parts to an oceanside cliff near Santa Cruz and threw them off the cliff's edge and into the water. All of Cynthia's body parts would splash into the chilly water individually, except her head. Ed kept her head and would eventually bury it in his mother's backyard, right under her bedroom window. That seems like the beginning of a sick ritual. Is this the first time he's done something like that with his mother in mind? Um, kind of got me hemmed up here. This is one of those situations where if you say, oh, I don't want to spoil anything, but by saying that, you kind of spoil it. Does that make any sense? Not to me. It's rare that anything you say makes sense. Um, no spoilers then. Whatever. Ed was learning to better hide his hideous crimes with each kill. One of the methods used to keep women he captured from simply opening the door and jumping out was both devious and effective. After the co-ed, 
or co-eds climbed into his car. He would tell them that the passenger door did not close completely as he stretched his massive frame, leaning over the passenger to open and reclose the passenger door. In doing this, he would drop a tube of chapstick in the housing of the inside door handle. This would block the mechanism from unlatching the door, thus causing the door to remain closed when the inside handle was pulled. Simple and effective. Ed had something else working in his favor. His mother worked at UCSC. Because of this, he was able to obtain the proper stickers for his vehicle to gain access to campus. These young hitchhikers would see the sticker when Ed pulled over. They would lower their defenses and place trust in the driver. Ed was becoming more proficient and efficient in his process of taking lives to fulfill his dark fantasies. Ed was a young man. Mentally, he functioned as any normal young man did. Emotionally, however, Ed was the same 15-year-old that was sent to a Tescadero. It comes as no surprise that he had problems with romantic relationships. He'd never had a girlfriend, and the consensual sexual encounters he did have were not pleasurable at all. Ed admittedly could not perform because he was so intimidated by sexual acts. Besides necrophilia, he could not find pleasure in sex. This heavily went to why he committed his crimes. The other profound variable was his mother, Clarnell. To Clarnell, Ed was nothing more than a constant reminder of her failed marriage. She blamed Ed for nearly all the negatives in her life. When Clarnell took to drinking, things only got worse. She had an ability and desire to find Ed's breaking point and push past it. According to Ed, she enjoyed making him as miserable and angry as she could. In February of 1973, these youths that scoffed at authorities' warnings not to hitchhike were taking this more seriously. Besides Kemper's victims, there were nearly a dozen other murders that police were dealing with. A mother and her two children were killed in their home. A priest was stabbed to death in his own confessional booth. This was completely unprecedented for this area. All this did not prevent Rosalind Thorpe from hitchhiking to reach her destination, however. Rosalind would be picked up by a friendly-looking man driving a large car with an A sticker in the windshield. The A sticker is the campus parking pass previously mentioned. She climbed in the passenger seat, the two occupants exchanged pleasantries, and the driver began heading towards Rosalind's requested destination. Less than 10 minutes later, Alice Lou had her thumb out on the side of the road, looking for a ride. Alice seemed more cautious than Rosalind. Alice did not stick her thumb out until she saw there was another woman in the car and the A sticker on the windshield. The driver would pull over and allow Alice, who thought she was safe, to climb inside. A few days later, both girls would be reported missing. A massive search was launched in the mountain range near campus. Police with hundreds of volunteers began searching for the two missing young women. On February 5th, 1973, the bodies of Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Slew would be discovered. Heads missing and Rosalind's hands were cut off. Despite the condition in which the remains were found, they were identified by the clothes worn when last seen on the UCSC campus. Ed Kemper had claimed the lives of two more young co-eds, shooting them to death. 
On February 13th, police would finally get a break in the case. Gunshots were reported in the city of Santa Cruz, along with witness statements describing the shooter's car. Not long after, the car was pulled over and the driver arrested. Police and the community thought they had finally caught the monster responsible for all this horror and that their nightmare was over. His name was Herbert Mullen. There were too many differences in Herbert's crimes from Ed's for authorities to be sure Mullen should be held accountable for all of it, however. Herbert was a heavy drug user, and the motives he described bordered on lunacy. He thought that every time he killed someone, it would stave off an apocalyptic-scale earthquake. These crimes were not sexually motivated. Ed's were. Although the community was safer with Mullen behind bars, Ed was still out there. Unlike Mullen, Ed was careful in not leaving any evidence that would link him to his crimes. Ed worked hard to make sure all the police officers would think he was nothing but a large, harmless doofus. And it worked. Ed was never suspected. Ed claimed he felt remorseful for the horrors he inflicted on these young women. He started to convince himself that this all had to end. In April of 1973, police obtained all the recent sales records of firearms bought in the area. They noticed that one of the sales records named Edmund Emil Kemper III as the purchaser of a 44 Magnum revolver. Many of these police knew Ed. These records didn't draw suspicion. They just noticed it. Because of Ed's firearm purchases, his sealed records from the murder of his grandparents became available. It wasn't until they received the sales record of the large revolver did the police look into the sealed record of Ed's. Because Ed's record was sealed, and he was a juvenile when he murdered his grandparents, police weren't sure if Ed was allowed to own firearms. While waiting for their answer, they decided they should confiscate the 44. Detective Mickey Alufi and his partner were dispatched. Neither of these officers had ever met Ed. They were unaware of what he even looked like. Mickey and his partner headed to Ed's address, but the addresses were confusing. Ed lived in a fourplex with his mother. Mickey didn't know this. Some of the home's address numbers were skewed by vegetation or walls. Mickey decided to walk over to a man lying in the front seat of his car. He appeared to be working on something under the passenger side of the dashboard. Mickey approached and identified himself. He asked the man in the car if he could help them locate an address. Mickey heard the man say, sure, in a friendly tone. Out of the car climbed 6'9", 280-pound Ed Kemper. The two officers were taken aback at the sheer size of this man. Mickey told Ed what address he was looking for, and Ed informed him that it was his address. Mickey then verified Ed's identity and told him why they were there. Mickey recalls Ed being very cooperative and friendly. Ed told Mickey that the gun he was looking for was in his trunk. Ed walked back toward the trunk of his car, fumbling with his keys. Ed would find the key to open the trunk, and as he was inserting the key, the officers instinctively flanked the trunk. As the lid slowly opened, both officers placed their hands upon their holstered service weapons. When the trunk fully opened, inside was the gun they were looking for. Ed would later tell Mickey that if they wouldn't have flanked him, or looked to search the car further, or asked to look inside his apartment, he was going to kill them both. Under the passenger seat was Ed's 22 caliber pistol used in his murders. In his closet, Mickey and his partner would have found a shotgun, 
hunting rifle, and victim possessions, such as IDs and jewelry. Ed admitted that he thought it was done for right then and there, but the officers gathered the 44, gave Ed a receipt, and left. After the cops drove out of Ed's sight, a pronounced thought engulfed his mind. The only way to put an end to this is to kill the one person he felt responsible for all of his appalling actions, his mother, Clarnell. So, he blames his mother for all of these horrid acts? Yep. And he's going to kill his mother? That sounds like the plan. I feel ashamed to say this, but I'm intrigued. I hope everyone listening is. Let's continue the story. I have to know what happens next. Oh. Oh, we're gonna on the next episode. You dirty fucker. Are you really going to leave us on a cliffhanger? I am. I don't like it either, but that's how it is. Why? Because. Because why? Just because. I hope everyone gives you shitty reviews now. That's kind of a dumb thing to say. Oh yeah? Why is that? If everyone gives me bad reviews, then I have no reason to keep going with the podcast, thus removing the need for a co-host. So give us a good review wherever you're listening. I've never seen you piss backwards like that on anything. I want to live. That's eerie. Anyway, thank you all so much for listening. Tell everyone you know to give a good review too, even if they've never listened. That's a bit needy. And check out our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Worldwide Crime Podcast. Okay, this is weird now. Until next time, friends, stay safe. Yeah, we'll see you all on the next one.